And as the children are making their way out, we're talking about the power of Christmas and uh, our peace for the, uh, our, <laughs> our um, topic for the Advent is peace. And that's going to be our topic this morning. And uh, so I'm going to get you to stand with me, if you will. And uh, we are going to look at a very, very familiar text uh, out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And uh, this is the story about the uh, angels appearing to the shepherds. And I am going to be reading the green. And uh, you are going to be reading the white. And this is what it says. And this is what it says. And this is what it says. Excellent. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and honor peace among those whom he is pleased. Beautiful. Let's pray. Father, again, we pause, and uh, we just want to, again, before we look to your word, acknowledge your presence amongst us in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, and particularly... And this is our passion, that we will go out into the city of Sudbury, our communities, particularly our neighborhoods and our homes, and we will live out what it means that we are Christ followers, that we are disciples of Jesus, that we are Christians. So we pray that you would help us, and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. And why don't you be seated? Now, the nativity, the nativity of, is God's standing statement of what he does for us by coming to us as a human person, as a human being. And the central message, of course, of Christmas and of the nativity is that God became a human being, a human person. John says this, and I'm using the message, and it's well known. It's, John says, the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory, or we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start Finish. Now, we call this the incarnation, the incarnation. But what does that mean? 
What does it mean that God became a human person, that God became a human being? Well, it means that Jesus Christ is simultaneously fully God and fully man. That Jesus is simultaneously 100% God and 100% human. And this togetherness in separation of these two natures in Jesus Christ is called the hypostatic union. Now, I know that's a big term, and uh, it's more intimidating than it is anything else, but this is what it means. The hypostatic union of Jesus means that there are two natures, divine, God, and human, that are distinct and separate from each other, and each nature keeps its normal characteristics. Now, that's a lot to take in. That's a lot to get our heads around. And that's one of the problems why we never talk about the hypostatic union that much because it is difficult to explain. It's hard to define, but it's also very complex to understand and to get our heads around. And I think probably that's one of the reasons why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and says it the way that it's said there when he writes... Great indeed, we confess that the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up the glory. Now, according to Andrew Root, and that even science, particularly quantum mechanics, don't lose me here, gives us an illustration of the hypostatic union, the union of these two natures, God and man, in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read to you, and I wanted to give it to you in your notes so uh, you would have it. Um, <clears throat> Root quotes John Polkinghorne in, out of uh, Polkinghorne's book, Quark's chaos, and Christianity, and Polkinghorne writes this. He says, one of one, once two electrons, once two electrons or any pair of quantum particles have interacted with each other, they possess the power to influence each other, no matter how far they are separated from each other. He says, if one of the two electrons stay here in the laboratory and the other goes beyond the other side of the moon, as we say, then anything that I do to the electron here will have an immediate effect on its distant brother. In other words, there is a very surprising togetherness in separation built into the fabric of the quantum world. Now, science testifies to the power of God and the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, the coming together of two natures, God and man, in one person, Jesus. But one of the questions that's often asked is this. Why did God have to become a human and die? Well, there are at least four reasons that I want to give us this morning. 
of why God became a human person, a human being. The first had to do with the fact that Jesus had to be God because if he were not God, he would not be able to save us. The Bible says that God created us and God called us good. He called his creation good. So when we responded to disobedience and fell so deeply into sin that we were held hostage by it and death, God did the only thing that was possible to save us. And that was taking on a human body so God could die. Let it hang there for a moment. Now those words coming out of my mouth feel very uncomfortable. That God took on a human body so God could die. And maybe those words are uncomfortable for you or probably need to be, but they are true nevertheless, that God died for us. The second reason why Jesus had to be, that God had to become human, because Jesus had to become completely human become a person like us, because if he were not like us, then he could not be the representation of all of humanity in his death. God in Jesus took to himself a human body like ours, like our own. And Jesus, of course, we know from the Gospels, let himself be seen as a human person doing and saying things that clearly showed that he was a man, but he was more than a man. He was God. Jesus' human body was not a limitation to God, but an instrument. And being in a human body... God, sorry, being in a human body did not defile God, but rather sanctified the body. One of the things that has taken place in Christianity, and we have, here in, we have inherited this from a non-Christian uh, uh, philosophy, is that the body is bad, that, that material things are bad. Matter of fact, that's where many Christians get hung up on sexuality is because the body is bad, therefore sexuality must be bad. But the Bible says that both those things are very good. We didn't get that from the Bible that the body is bad and that sexuality is bad. We got that from an ancient philosophy, but it's not Christian. And then there's this. I've been reading this book. I've been reading... um, 25 books that every Christian should read. I haven't been reading the 25 books. I've been reading the book that talks about the 25 books that every Christian should read. You follow that? And one of the 25 books that every Christian should read in the book, 25 books that every Christian should read, is the book by Athanasius, St. Athanasius, called On the Incarnation. It was written around 326 A.D., And there's a question asked in the book that I have never, ever thought about before, and I doubt if you ever thought about it either. And the question is, why was it fitting and necessary 
for God to take on a human body, to take on human form. Why didn't God take on some other form like the sun or the moon or the stars or an animal? And the answer comes back and says, they did not deviate, stray, or go off their path as we humans did. Because God became a human person. You and I, we are able to be redeemed or saved. And our text tells us that the God who redeems us is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, redeem is a word that we throw around in Christianity, but there are many different nuances of what it means to redeem. For example, exchange, convert, transfer, release, liberate, free, emancipate, deliver, and change. And all of these ideas are found as themes throughout the Bible. But going along with the theme of redeem is the power to change. Somebody said, most of us or many of us were taught that God would love us if and when we changed. In fact, God loves us so that we can change. The power to change is not always something that you and I can do or will upon ourselves. Something that we can happen, make happen to us. But something that God makes possible. Verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that tells us that change is possible, that we can change, that we can be changed, that you can change and I can change, and our lives can be changed and transformed. Ruth Patterson gives three great examples of change, and I think that we could probably see ourselves in one of these three, and I'm going to add a fourth one. She says that maybe we can identify with the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, who finds, themselves, finds himself alone among the pigs after his wild parties where he has squandered his inheritance and is pierced by the awareness. As he's sitting in this pig pen, he is pierced by the awareness of the goodness of his father's house. He begins to see things differently, and he begins his journey home. Humbled and honored by a love that doesn't just wait for him, but runs to embrace him. And he crosses the threshold of home. He crosses the threshold of faith and lets Jesus put his feet on a different path. And as if coming home for the first time, he finds his dinner waiting for him in the form of a huge celebration and the affirmation of sonship or daughterhood if we want to be inclusive. Maybe some of us identify more with the wealthy 
Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. The despised tax collector of Jericho. Acting out of character, throwing caution to the wind, he runs and climbs a tree in his passionate nature to see Jesus. And then he too crosses the threshold. He crosses the line of faith and lets Jesus put his feet on a different path. He climbs down transformed, no longer given over to greed and deceit, but to generosity and compassion. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. Or maybe this Christmas, some of us will identify with the wise men or the magi in Luke or in Matthew chapter 2, who, following the star and following Herod's instructions to Bethlehem, their crossing the line of faith was a literal crossing the threshold of the stable or the house at Bethlehem, and they too let Jesus put their feet on a different path. The wonder and the mystery of what was revealed to them sends them home a different way. They are changed. Life can never be the same. And the last one that I think maybe some of us can identify with is John. Not the biblical John, but the John who showed up at a church and asked if the gospel was real. And John said, when I pulled into the parking lot today, I felt like I had to, but I wasn't aiming my car in this direction. I was going to kill myself when I pulled into this parking lot. The pastor who was telling this story commented, he said, I know people well enough to ask if they're threatening suicide, do they have a plan? And so I asked John, John, do you have a plan for ending your life? And John said, yes. Yes, I did. And it's already in motion. I went to the hardware store this morning and I brought a garden hose and I bought some duct tape. And my plan was to drive down a rural road and tape the hose to the muffler of my car and then feed it into my car window. And the pastor says, John, for real? Like for real you bought a garden hose? Now, this is what you don't know. Just before John showed up, the pastor and the custodian are talking about the fact that they need a new hose to feed the baptismal tank. That's right. That's right. You know. And the pastor said, I got a glimpse of redemption that day. I saw John cross the threshold, the line of faith, and let Christ put his feet on a different path. He went on to say, I saw God take something that was intended for death 
that hose and use it to fill up something that means life, our baptismal tank. And the pastor said from then on, every time we did water baptisms, we told John's story. And that brings us to this. The third essential reason why God had to become man. God's self-revelation. In other words, so that you and I, so that we could actually know our creator. Athanasius in the book that I mentioned a moment ago said, for of what use is existence to the creature if we cannot know its maker? Now, we are told that there are a number of ways that we can know God. That first of all, that we can know God through the fact that we are made in his image, Genesis tells us. The Bible also tells us that we can come to know God through creation, through nature, through everything that has been made. That's what Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1 tells us. And then we can also know God through the law. That's what Romans 2 and Psalm 119 tells us. And then finally, we can know God through the prophets. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. And although we are able to know God through the fact that we are made in his image and that we can know God by nature and creation and the law and the prophets, but because all four of these and more have been misconstrued and have been distorted, drastic measures were needed. So as Athanasius says, the incorporeal and the incorruptible and the immaterial word of God, that is the second person of the Trinity to the Son, entered our world. Much simpler put, God sent Jesus. And God sent Jesus so that we could know God again. God came to us in this way, a simple means so that we could understand it. God entered the world in a new way, stooping to our level in his love and his self-revealing manner. But there's also this. The fourth essential reason for God becoming human is that God took on a human body in order to save us, tells us, of our worth in God's eyes. I like the way one person put it. They said, Jesus was not changing the Father's mind about us, but he was changing our mind about God and thus about one another. For unto us is born this day in the city of David, the Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you, for me, for us. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, not just for the shepherds, not just for the Jews, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. Matter of fact, the line before in verse 10 says, and the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Not just a few, not just some. 
Jesus' entire journey told people two major things. That life could have a positive storyline and that God was far different and far better than we ever thought. Christmas, the nativity, is for us. It's for you. It's for me. And that brings us finally to this. Verse 13 and 14 say, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now I grew up with the King James Bible. And uh, there are some things in the King James Bible that are just better said than any other translation. And Luke chapter 2, verse 14 is one of them. And this is what Luke chapter 2, verse 14 says in the King James. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men or toward humanity. Now, I love using that phrase. And one of the reasons why I love using it, because it catches people off guard. It, it surprises them. Because most people are surprised to hear that God's disposition toward them is actually goodwill. Goodwill. So let's finish by talking about and focusing on God's goodwill. This past week, uh, GTC, Glad Tidings, we were responsible for taking care of volunteering for one of the Christmas kettles in the New Sudbury Mall. And um, it was my job at, uh, from to, to uh, volunteer for it at um, between 4 and 6 on a particular day last week. Um, and by the way, for all of you that did volunteer, thank you because we did a very good thing there. But one of the things that helped me pass the time was observing people. And it's a funny thing when you're looking for money in the mall. First of all, there are those people who just avoid you. And then there are those, if this is the kettle, there are those who do this. They just walk way around. And then there are those people that feel guilty, self-conscious, and they say, you know, I gave in the other kettle at the mall, and I say, no problem, no problem, don't worry about it. And then other people would say, you know what, I don't have any money. And I feel like saying, well, we take checks. <laughs> but I didn't do that. But as I watched and observed people, I was reminded of this famous line from Henry David Thoreau, and you've heard it a billion times. The mass of men and women live lives of quiet desperation. Or so it seems, at least by what I observed in the New Sudbury Mall this past week, and at other times that I've had an opportunity to observe people. Uh, the faces of people, their eyes. Uh, you can almost see the pain or the unhappiness, or the uncertainty, whatever it is, 
And I thought of what Thoreau said. And then I thought of that, that, that our text this morning is very significant in light of what we're talking about. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And most of us know what Thoreau was talking about because we have all experienced it to some extent at some time. Hopefully not all the time. What we might call the longing of the human heart. The longing of our souls deep within us. That holy longing for more, not more stuff, but more meaning and purpose and value and significance. And people express it in words like this. Is this all there is? There has to be more. Now, I'm going to throw another phrase at you, a term. I think I fell down and hurt myself this week, maybe. This idea of this longing and Thoreau's quiet desperation is also known as existential despair, numbness of the heart. Now, it can come about in many, from many different sources, both positive and negative. For example... A sense of being alone and isolated in the world can bring numbness to the heart. A newfound grasp of our own mortality can do it. Believing that our lives lack meaning and value and significance and purpose. But also, so can a deepened awareness of our freedom and the consequences of responsibility that come with it. So can an extremely pleasurable and pleasant experience, as can a very painful and hurtful experience, what might be referred to as great love or great suffering. Or maybe a significant event in our lives can bring about this numbness to our hearts, like trauma, or the major or major loss, like a relationship or a marriage or the death of a loved one, or a life-threatening illness, or adult children leaving home, or even reaching a personally significant age, what we call midlife crisis. I had a, I had a quarter-life crisis at 25. No joke. I had a midlife crisis at 80. At 80. <laughs> at 40. I just feel like 80. But I look pretty good for 80. <clears throat> and now I'm waiting for the mature midlife crisis. It'll come at 60 or 65, who knows, but I'm looking forward to it. I might be able to handle it better. But existential despair, numbness of the heart, can be a moment when and where we question the very foundation of life. And we question the very foundation of our life, whether it or not it has meaning and purpose and value and significance. But whatever the cause, the source 
or the reason. The conclusion is unavoidable. We have no way to satisfy our desperation, our longing, our despair, or the numbness of our hearts. There is nothing and no one on earth that can solve our dilemma. Self-salvation does not work. We cannot save our self. But where earth fails, heaven and God excels. The angels in our text, the angels from heaven, announces that God has a way. A new day from heaven will dawn upon us that salvation comes heavenward, downward. That the gift is from God for us. It is God-given. It is God-driven. It is God-originated, and it is God-empowered. In my readings over the last while, can you advance that slide for me too, please, Mary Jean? Thank you. That's what I want, exactly. I came across this prayer, and every now and then I get these prayers, and I have in my, um, in my device, I have a, a, a list of prayers that I think are amazing prayers. And I don't know where this one comes from, but I found it in my readings, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. It goes to the goodness of God. It says, God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing pity, mercy, and pity. Grant me the fullness of your grace that I, running to obtain your promises, may become a partaker of your heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. There's a word that I really like, juxtaposition. My wife uses it, and she was the first one to sort of introduce me to it. And the idea is it's uh, juxtaposition means association. You know what it means. Association, it means comparison. But it also means taking two different ideas or even contradictory ideas and placing them beside each other. And here in this prayer is the juxtaposition of these words. Oh, God, you declare your almighty power in showing mercy and pity. We don't very often equate almighty power with mercy and pity, but this is the goodness of God. That he shows his almighty power chiefly in showing us mercy and pity. And I don't know about you, but I need mercy. Oh, hang on, I do know about you. We are no different. We need mercy and pity. Rather than just simply telling us what he was like, God came to us personally. Somebody wrote, God did not just give us textbook answers from a distance but personally walked through the process of being both rejected and forgiving. And then he said, follow me. Let's pray together. Father, 
Father, we give you thanks and give you praise. Our minds, it's hard for us. This is why we need your spirit, because it's hard for us to get our heads around. Jesus is both God and man, separate and distinct, and yet maintains the characteristics of both natures. The fact that you would show your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity, Lord, it, it, it gets away from us. It is beyond us to comprehend that. But I know that the Holy Spirit can take it, those truths, and the awareness of them can penetrate even our hearts. And Father, you do so because you love us and you want to save us, you want to redeem us, but you also want us to change. And whether it's the prodigal that we identify with or Zacchaeus, or whether it is the wise man or it's John, change is available. Change is possible. We can be changed. So Father, today, I thank you and I praise you for you are good. And your goodwill is toward us. That's your disposition. That's your leaning. Goodwill toward us. And I pray today for everybody in this room and all of those that are watching online, Lord, that you would just penetrate our hearts and minds and souls this Christmas season with that truth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.